0: Please take your copy of God's Word and and open it to the short letter of James. I'm going to, once again, provide you with a translation that I hope will be helpful in terms of just consistently translating some of the words in the original language to convey the meaning. I understand it might not be as smooth as the English translation that you hold in your hand, but the intention in mine is really to make sure we understand the meaning of the text in its context. James is a short epistle, it would have been read to the congregation that was gathered in one sitting. The leaders of the church would not have invited the church to gather, read two or three verses from the letter, and and then said, now come back next week and we'll do the next few verses. Uh, There were no verses. It was just one letter and it would have been read cover to cover over and over again because people needed to understand the entire letter to understand the parts of the letter. And that's why we're taking this in bigger sections maybe than you might have expected because we're covering entire units of thought that the author had and that the Holy Spirit inspired. This whole series is called True Religion. And each week, we're looking at one particular fruit, and this week, we'll look at the fruit of obedience. We'll be in James chapter 1, verses 19, all the way through chapter 2, and verse 13. Well, please follow along in your Bibles, if you will, as I read the text this morning from what's inside the bulletin. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every man be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the justification of God. For this reason, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. However, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. However, the one who looks into the complete law, the law of freedom, and abides, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the father is this to care for orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world my brothers show no partiality as you hold the faith in our lord jesus christ the lord of glory For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing might come into your synagogue, and if a poor man in shabby clothing also might come in, and if you might pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit in a place of honor, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my footstool, then have you not judged among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers… Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised by those loving him? However, you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into courts? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love neighbor as yourself. You are honorable. However, if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are being convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery also said, do not murder. And if you commit adultery but do not murder, you become a transgressor of the law." In this matter, so speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is God's Word. The main point of the sermon this morning is this, obedience to the will and the Word of God will show the fruits of faith in action, honor, and mercy. Obedience to the will and the Word of God will show the fruits of faith in action, honor, and mercy. The first one is action. You become a doer of the Word, a doer of the gospel. Verse 19 begins with the word know, and this is an objective kind of knowing. It's different than the word know that we studied last week, know by experience. This is know by objective information, by learning. And he says this again to his beloved brothers. This is written to church people. So all of these lessons that we're learning here in the book of James are written to church people, which means all the things that are mentioned here, which are of a negative sort, need to be understood as being possible even within a healthy church. Let us never become surprised by what we're capable of in the flesh, but let us never become discouraged that what we're capable of will overrule the grace of God in your life. He says, let every man, and he is turning this specifically, it's the word for males, not the brothers, meaning brothers and sisters, but men, let every man be quick to listen, now, this is different than the word here that we're going to see down in verse 22 through 25. It's listen, it means take it in. I want you to be quick to listen, and I want you to be slow. It means deliberate. Be very deliberate in terms of your speaking. You can't just rattle off with your mouth. Now, this, you might wonder, is well, what does this mean? This is kind of hard to understand especially when it's connected to slow to anger, which is the next part there in verse 19. And before we go any further, let me try to explain it to you by going to another portion in the book of James. So turn over, if you will, to James chapter 3. It's the section where he talks about the tongue. And the reason why he says, be slow to speak, but quick to listen, is because speaking was a major problem there, and speaking was related to teaching. In chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, he says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with with, with greater strictness, for we will stumble in many ways, and if anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man able to bridle his whole body. He goes on to describe all the terrible things that can happen by people who speak, by people whose tongue is not bridled, and it's in the context of teaching. No one does more harm within a church than an ungodly teacher. Ungodly teachers can bring in false doctrine, doctrine that is not consistent with the confession of the church. They know they don't believe the doctrine of the church. They know they don't really affirm what the elders are teaching, and so they still set themselves up as teachers so they can somehow accumulate to themselves people that they think they can convince about their doctrine. It happens quite frequently in churches. But it is also utterly destructive when the preacher or the teacher is somebody who is ungodly in their practice and in their deeds and in the way they tear down others with their tongue. In fact, they are capable of all forms of wickedness and ungodliness. And so here, this lesson that is being delivered to the recipients of the letter would be this. You'd be very quick to be the one who hears the Word, listens to the Word, learns from the Word, submits to the Word, sits under the Word, is taught by the Word, receives the Word. But if you're going to turn around and try to teach that Word, if you're going to speak that Word, be very careful in how quickly you take up that assignment. And when you do, do it with the utmost care and respect for what you're doing. Be very slow and deliberate if you are to speak, either to react to the word or to teach the word, and be very slow to anger. What does that connection look still in James chapter 3, beginning in verse 13? Notice this, who is wise and understanding among you, by his good conduct let him show his works in meekness of wisdom, the humility is there, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. The one who doesn't humbly teach the wisdom of God can actually put themselves in a position where they are doing something in such a fleshly way that they are teaching what is earthly, unspiritual, and even demonic. Verse 16 sums it up. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. There are so many lessons within the book of James that are teaching people to divert from their natural tendency towards doing things that is wicked and divisive that you can arrive at no other conclusion than the churches that are being written to here had a problem with that. Within the church, they had some of that going on. There was partiality going on. There was wicked speech going on. There was division and contention and fighting and people murdering each other in their mind, as it were, because of hatred. And so the author is writing this to tell them that if you're going to truly obey the Lord and bear the fruit of the Spirit, it's going to have to be in the way that you act towards one another. The anger of man that comes from all this bitterness and jealousy, the cruelty of man that comes from his speech is inconsistent with a man who listens and hears the gospel and has it firmly implanted. I know that because their ministry is going to be fruitless. Notice what he says in verse 20, that the anger of man does not produce the justification of God. It's the word righteousness in many translations, but it's the word justification used elsewhere in the New Testament. The true gospel of God is not brought through anger. It's not beaten into people. It's not brought to you by angry men. Have you ever heard a preacher who seems to be angry all the time? You ever come across that? Maybe you sat in churches like that? Guy gets up every week and he just yells at you? I've been in places like that. I've sat under preaching like that, and I've sat there thinking to myself, why are you yelling at me? Like, what have I done to you? Why are you so angry? Like, what are you so upset about? And they rattle off all the things they're angry about in the world and all the… it's it's like, man… I don't know if I could handle this every week. I don't have the constitution for it. There are angry men who teach God's Word. There are angry men who seem to take whatever it is that is angering them in the world, and they they channel it through, and, and it's not the sweetness of Christ's invitation that comes through. It's this this punishing, brutal attack on everything, on on the culture, on other churches, on other pastors. And what the author is saying here is that that you be quick to learn, and when the time comes to speak, then when you speak, it'll be with that graciousness, like a, a Romans 2 4 kind of sweet invitation to the justification of God. Anger doesn't save anyone. And so, for this reason, verse 21, being the futility of anger, he says this, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Now, do you see why he would say that? Because of everything else he's going to say later on in the book of James. What comes out of angry people who speak too much? All sorts of filthiness. This was a word to describe the filthy garment you had on when you came back from doing a job that would fill you with all kinds of of dirt. He says, you throw this thing off all the filthiness, all the wickedness, everything connected with anger, and instead you need to receive, like you would a guest into your home, with all meekness and gentle humility, this word, this gospel that has been grafted into you, planted into you. Once again, James will help us to understand this a little bit later in his letter. Look over at James 3, beginning in verse 17. He c- concludes his thoughts over here. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, isn't that a beautiful description of someone who brings the Word of God to you? Wouldn't you love to be described as a congregation where the gathering is described by even outsiders, as pure and peaceable and gentle and reasonable and full of mercy and all kinds of good fruits, and they're impartial and they're sincere in what they do, and everything about that place is just peace. I mean, that's my, that's my goal. That's my desire. People sometimes ask me, you know, what's your, what's your vision? And I say, well, I, I mean, the Bible's pretty clear about what a church is supposed to be. You're supposed to. Pray and sing and preach and practice the ordinances and do church discipline and, and live as a model of, of peace and, and sincerity and love to the, the watching world. And they say, Okay, great. What's your vision? <laughs> I don't have a vision. I don't have a plan for global takeover. I don't have a plan for what this church is going to do here in North County. What I have a plan to do is to go back into what Scripture says we're supposed to do and just consistently do that every week and let the Lord decide what He's going to do with the rest of it. And you ought to be in a place where that's that's the goal, that's the vision. The only vision is that which has already been given to us. It's not a mission, it's a mandate. It comes from the Word, and as that Word dwells in us richly, as that Word is something we listen to and submit to, it's going to show up in in a sweetness in the church, and it's going to be something that draws people in. And so, he says that it is through that sort of teaching of the Word, the implanted, grafted in Word is able to save your souls, However, verse 22, be doers of the Word. Here's where the action really comes in. Be doers of that logos and not just hearers. Very different word here. Not just hearers. Because those who just hear it but don't listen to it and aren't changed by it, they deceive themselves. Because, verse 23, if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. Now, he's going to give us an illustration here. It's a simile It's a little bit of a uh, an analogy, if you will. He wants to tell us: listen, don't just be a hearer, but be a listener, be a doer. Because if you're just a hearer, you're like somebody who goes and looks at his natural face, literally his birth face, the face he was born with. And you look at the face you were born with in a mirror. And then you look at yourself and you go away and you at once forget what you were like. You, you literally forget yourself. You forget your identity. You forget the fact that you are in need of this implanted word. When you stand before this mirror, he says, as an illustration of those who hear but don't do anything about it, you look at this natural face in the mirror and then you walk away as if you forgot who you were as if you couldn't pick yourself out of a lineup if there were a photograph given to you. You have absolutely no idea of who you are in relationship to this gospel. You don't realize how much you need it. However, notice the contrast. This is the one who is the hearer. They forget what they're like. However, verse 25, the one who looks into the complete law, or another way of saying it is the law of freedom, The word complete was used in the previous chapter, right, to mean whole. The complete law, the whole law, the final law, the perfect law, the law of freedom. This is the law that proves that Christ is the law keeper. And if you abide in that, like John 15, 4 tells us to do, abide in Christ and He in us, if you abide in this truth, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, And it's the strongest contrast possible. That word but, when I translate it, I use the word but instead of every other place in the English that uses but, because usually it means however, or for this reason, or if. But when I use the word but in my translation, it's because in the original, it's the strongest possible contrast given. It is meant to stop you and to make you say, okay, these are polar opposites. The polar opposites, the polar extremes of each other. On the one extreme is the hearer, and on the other extreme is the listener and the doer. And so on the one extreme is the person who hears that gospel and it just bounces off of them the way a bullet ricochets off a rock. And for the other one, they bring it in deep inside, the way the good soil brought that seed of the gospel inside, and it germinated, and it grew up, and it bore fruit, And this one who receives becomes the doer, and the one who becomes the doer can do that because they know that even in their doing, it is not their own merit that is being evaluated, but rather the Holy Spirit working through them and modeling the merits of Christ. The law of freedom is the freedom not to try to do the law. The law of freedom isn't a different law, but a different view of the law. The law of freedom says you see the law for what it is, you understand your condemnation and hopelessness under it, but then the good news comes that Christ himself has taken on that form of Adam, and he succeeded where Adam failed, and therefore now that law has had the sting taken out of it. The fangs have been snapped out, the venom has been removed, and though it remains, it is no longer a threat to your eternal soul, and instead you receive it then with joy, saying, may I obey this out of joy and gratitude to the Lord for what He has done for me in Christ. That transforms everything, and I will say this to you, beloved, it transforms the way a person preaches it. It is not weaponized. It is not turned into a way to conform you into somebody else's image, but rather it is delivered to you as the good news of the invitation from one wretch to a whole bunch of wretches to come and enjoy the feast while the door is open. And so this is what the author is telling them. This is what your action looks like. You're a doer of the word, a doer of the gospel. You will learn when you learn to listen. Hearing is not enough. Anger is not the road to righteousness. You must remember that God is the judge. The gospel written on your hearts is what will save. And those who merely hear avoid that. Those who do it abide in it. But secondly, you're also going to be able to grow in this fruit of honor. Look at verse 26. This is what true religion looks like. He says, if anyone thinks he is religious. Now, just stop there for a moment. Be very careful what this means. This was a word that meant to be somebody that was expressing their loyalty to a religious sect through ritual acts. It's used either as a neutral or even a negative term in the New Testament. It's, it's all over the place. Paul talks about him being religious. He was a sect of the Jews, namely the Pharisees. I believe it's Colossians talks about people who are religious, but they're worshiping angels. So, it's, it's, religious here is not necessarily a good word, but it's being essentially made good by James in this particular context, or at least he's taking the edge off it but not before he first makes his point. So, he says, if anyone thinks they are religious, but don't bridle his tongue, but there's a word again, strongest contrast, deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Everything they're doing to try to make themselves religious and look good and compliant with whatever it is that they're claiming to follow is worthless. However, if you want to go down this path of the outward acts that honor the Lord, look at verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled, meaning without hypocrisy, before God the Father is this. So if James says this is what it is, then we should listen. If James wants to take the idea of religion and say to somebody, you know, you're never as religious as you think you are. But if we want to just for a moment talk about religion, let's, let's give you the benefit of the doubt. If you want to do religion, if religion is what you want, If the outward manifestation of what you believe is important to you, here's what it looks like. And he goes on to describe it. He says that this is to care for widows and orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, first of all, notice, it's not the word visit. Sometimes people translate that, the word visit, and they think, well, I have to go out and have to visit people. And I, I become sort of this endless sort of traveling Visitor to everybody in the church that, that needs a visitor. Well, that's that's not what he's saying here. The word visit is actually much more important than that. It's not just going to see them in their loneliness, it is actually caring for them in their affliction, in their need. And he brings out two groups, widows and orphans. Not because everyone else in the church isn't worthy of this kind of attention, but they're the two that were most easily exploited. You minister to those who are potentially exploited. And so here, even in this church, we are continually ministering to those in our body who are in this category of being vulnerable. Oftentimes, it actually does include widows. In fact, just this week, I was dealing with a couple of widows in our church who were, I thought, at risk of being taken advantage of or had been taken advantage of, sometimes by scrupulous people around them. And, and it happens quite often because you're in a, a stressful situation. It's, it's sort of a, an affliction you're in distress, you don't know what to do. The people around you that were giving you some wisdom and, and counsel and guidance, they're they're not there anymore. And in First Timothy, there's some very specific instructions given to how to care for widows within the church. Here James is being more general. Look after them, care for them. It's not that difficult to interpret, but I want you to notice something. There's a connection, he says, to do this in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. What an interesting comparison. Uh, Why would those two go together? Look after widows and orphans and keep yourself unstained from the world. Now, is that because widows and orphans tend to hang out in really seedy parts of town and you don't want to get caught up with what they're doing? Like, you know, be careful hanging out with those widows because you know what can happen. Bad company corrupts good morals. All those orphans, be careful. You know how orphans are. Makes no sense. So why is he putting this together? He's putting this together because he's trying to give you a big picture of what it, it looks like to, to live out the, the honorable behavior of somebody who is filled with the Holy Spirit. Namely, you care for those who are afflicted, and you keep yourself from all sorts of the immorality uh, that can define people. He, he's trying to be as broad as he can. He says, you need to take care of the physical needs of these orphans and widows and vulnerable people, but you also need to care about morality. It seems today there's almost a a one or the other. You're very, very concerned about social causes, but the moral stuff is not so important, or you're super concerned about moral stuff, but you know what? The people in the church who have needs, you say, hey, that's not my problem. And James is saying that if you want to have truly practical religion, if you really want to somehow be described by somebody who is, or as somebody who is a doer of the word, do both. Look after those who are in need and keep yourself unstained from the world. Now, he goes on in verse 1 of chapter 2 to break this down a little bit further with another vivid illustration. Look what he says. My brothers show no partiality. It's a word that means to favor one over the other. Romans chapter 2, verse 11, Ephesians 6, 9, Colossians 3, 25, the other places where this is used, used mostly to describe God as being someone who is not impartial. And he says to them, my brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He says that if you're going to be like the Lord of glory, the glorious Lord who is over all, who is in all and through all, who is holding all together, who is the sovereign king of the universe, if he can be impartial, you can be impartial. If he can show no favoritism, you can show no favoritism if he can allow anybody to come right into his presence because they've been made an adopted child of God, then you can do the same. That's the issue at work here. And so with this lack of impartiality, he goes on to give a very practical illustration. Verse 2, 4, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing might come into your synagogue. Okay, everybody, hold on now. We're going to get into the grammar. It's going to take a little bit of time. If you don't want to hear about grammar, check out. I'll invite you back in a few minutes. But for those of you that really want to understand this text, you're going to have to bear with me because grammar is important. That's why nobody ought to stand up before you and teach God's Word if they can't understand the language it was written in, because it's very clear what he's saying here if we translate it properly. Now, one of the things that's at work is a mood in the original language called the subjunctive mood. And whether you're talking about Greek or English, it's the same. It's the mood of that which is hypothetical. That's why you always see the word if and might around that word. And he's doing this here very intentionally and deliberately. It's a hypothetical situation. It doesn't mean it was happening every day in the churches that he was writing to, but he sets it up. He says that if I were to give you an illustration that would help you understand, it would be this. So with that in mind, he says that this rich person, if he might come into your synagogue, and that's the right word, synagogue was used intentionally here, it's not assembly, it's not fellowship, it's synagogue. Why? Because the early church would often meet in the Jewish synagogues. And he says here, this is where Paul obviously would go in, he would teach God's Word in the synagogue until they kicked him out. Even some Christians would gather from time to time when the synagogue wasn't being used on the Sabbath. And so he says here, if they come into your synagogue, a rich man, and if a poor man in shabby clothing also might come in, and if you might pay attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothing and say, you sit here in the place of honor... Now, why is that important? Well, because in a synagogue, there was a place of honor. The place of honor in the synagogue was right at the front. Now, in today's church, it's a little bit different, right? The place of honor is somewhere in the back. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, we were visiting the church that my daughter and her new husband are going to be attending, and we arrived there a little bit late. And so, the usher came to the back, and he said to us, are you… Um, how many are in your group?" And, and I looked around, and there was five of us or something, and he says, okay, you know, I've you you got a seat where you can sit together. I said, great. He says, yeah, but it's on the front row. Is that okay? And I'm going, yeah, for sure. I've got to live by example. I've got to be like one of those front row people it's not afraid of the front row. The whole rest of my family like, oh, no, not the front row, please. <laughs> I realized no one wants to sit on the front row in church. That's why literally half of them are available. But in a synagogue, it was different, man. That's where you wanted to be. Not only were you in the front row, but catch this, it was turned the other way, so you faced everybody. It would be like you coming forward right now and sitting on these steps facing everybody else. That would be the place of honor. And people actually fought to get those. And this was a place of honor because where you wanted to be was right there by the person who was reading the Torah, who was reading the Old Testament scroll. And in some... Synagogues have been revealed by archaeology. There was actually a place called the Seat of Moses, and the teacher would sit there And at the footstool of Moses was the ultimate place to sit. If you were the big contributor to the synagogue, if you were the leader, if you were the ruler, you got to sit at the front facing the rest of the people. And the inclination in those days was to treat rich people in a certain special way and guide them in and give them those seats. That's the image. But then a poor man comes in, and you say to him, you go sit over there. What does that mean? Well, in the synagogue, it was set up as a square. And so everybody was sitting on these benches, and they were facing inward. And the over there was usually the place that was either outside where those benches were, out there kind of on the patio. Or as far back from the rest of the people as you could get them. Or, he says, sit at my feet, which means you're on the bench and you're letting that poor person sit on the floor in the sunken area in the middle of the synagogue. A place of absolute dishonor. So that's the mental picture you need to have. He says, this is what it looks like. This is the hypothetical situation. Imagine that were to happen. Rich people come in, you give them the nice front row seats that are facing everybody else, so everyone can look at them in all of their fine clothing, in all of their gold jewelry, and you put that poor person somewhere completely out of the way, make it so they're not even seen, whether they're down in that sunken area in the middle or they're down at your feet in front of the bench in front of you, and you make sure that they're not seen. That's the picture. Now into that, he speaks this truth. He says then, as a result of this verse verse 4, have you not judged among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Evil thoughts flourish in places where there is partiality. Don't turn there, but just listen to this one more time. James chapter 3, and in this case verse 9, he says, With our tongue, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. That's what's happening to these poor people. And he says, listen, same word as at the beginning, listen, learn, my beloved brothers. He's speaking to Christians. He is saying to them, hasn't God chosen, literally the word elect from Ephesians 1.4, right? Election, the doctrine of election, one of the core tenets of Protestant faith, one of the core doctrines of the Reformation, one of the key doctrines we teach here at this church, election. That God, before the foundation of the world, chose those who would be saved, not on anything that they did or ever would do, but purely by divine, sovereign grace. That same loaded word is used by James to describe the fact that these beloved brothers, fellow Christians, were chosen by God. And they are the poor in this world, but man, they are rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Wow. Be careful how you treat God's children. (laughs) Be careful how you treat the princes and the princesses of the king. Because here they come in, and they are just as chosen by God to be heirs of the kingdom as everybody else. And if you've got a twisted and a distorted religion, your religion is going to say that God must treat the rich people better and therefore love them more, and they must be more righteous. And James is trying to come in and explode that way of thinking. Theirs is the kingdom, which he has promised to those loving him. Same structure as in verse chapter 1, verse 12, those continually loving Him. As we said last week, who are those that are loving Him? We went back to the illustration in Luke chapter 7 of that sinful woman, right? And Jesus says, leave her alone. The person who is forgiven much loves much. It's often the poor who love much, who realize God's daily provision for them. It's quite often the rich who sort of coast along thinking they're not really sure they need it. Now, this is not, let me be clear, this is not an absolute statement that all poor people are godly and all rich people are ungodly. We could go on and on about that reality. It's simply not the truth. It's not saying that. But he is saying in this illustration, in this little story that he has given, make sure you understand that God has chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith. Theirs is the kingdom which he has promised to those loving him. However, verse 6, you don't treat them right. He says, however, you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? Now, in this particular case, the rich weren't the nicest group. Look over at chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. Again, the rest of the letter will tell us that, but it's going to be a few weeks before I get here. James 5, 1 to 6. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth eaten, your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you. They will eat your flesh like fire. That's a pretty intense way to start off with the rich, isn't it? Wow. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborer who mowed your fields, which you've kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. The God who's got his gun strapped on—that's the way you look at it. That's to he described himself, with his bow pulled back, arrow set. That's the God that you've offended. It's reached him. He's a God of justice. He visits the widows and the orphans in their affliction. So he does come after the rich, and he comes after them very hard. And I believe if this letter was written to Christians and gathered believers on the Lord's day, you might want to conclude there were at least some of those people present in the church. That's why I said this, this church, these churches weren't perfect churches. So he is clear later on with what's going on with these rich people. He goes on in the rest of it. You have lived in, on this earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Literally murdered them? Probably not, but murdered them in their heart. Hated them showed partiality towards them. And so, go back to chapter 2. You've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? Are they not the ones who drag you into court? 1 Corinthians 6, 4 to 6 talks about this as well. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? You see, this is why I use the word honor over and over again. Honor, dishonor, it's contrasted. The fruit of the spirit of obedience is to honor the Lord. The way you honor the Lord is to honor those who are His children without any respect for their wealth. He's calling everybody to honor the Lord more than anything else. By the way, that name by which you were called is the name Christian. It was given to the followers of Christ, not as a way to describe them in a positive way, but really as a mocking term. You're a little Christ's. You're following your little Messiah who came and was crucified Apparently, you would missed that part. They mock us because they don't understand the resurrection, the ascension, and the kingship of our Lord. So, obedience to the will and the Word of God is going to be shown in the fruits of faith, namely action and honor, and then finally mercy. Look at verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are honorable. i was going to pick up on this word from before. Now this statement is saying something different than you might be thinking at first reading. So let's slowly go through this, make sure we understand it. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law, the royal law is the perfect law, God's law, the law that comes down from Mount Sinai. God's civil, ceremonial, moral law, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scriptures, every jot and tittle summarized by you shall love your neighbor as yourself in Leviticus 19.18, then you are honorable. Now, is that an invitation to try to perfectly and without exception and for every moment of your life obey God's royal law. Is that what he's really doing here? Is that what he's saying? He is saying, you're good. As long as you obey the law perfectly, you're good. In fact, you can close up the letter now because you don't need to hear the rest of this. Is he really trying to find somebody in the church who put up their hand and say, I guess that applies to me? No, in fact, he's setting it up on purpose. They would have known the Gospels at this point, maybe even the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 12, verse 31, where Jesus encounters one of the religious leaders and When the guy says, hey, you know, the summary of the law is simply to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And and Jesus says, yeah, you're close. You're getting it. (laughs) You're beginning to understand it. It's not about all these rituals that you guys have built up to burden the people with. Same idea here. It's the only other place it's mentioned. And so he's immediately setting up the hopelessness of that statement. You will never be honorable that way believe me, you don't want honor based on achievement. You don't want to stand before the Lord one day and ask for rewards based on merit. You want His righteousness based on mercy. And he goes on to say that, verse 9, however, if you show partiality, thinking back to the illustration he just gave, you are committing sin and are being convicted by the law as transgressors, And the reality is everybody shows partiality. And you are being convicted continually by this law for, here's the conclusion, verse 10, whoever keeps the entire law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Don't even try to honor the Lord by keeping the royal law. If that's your benchmark for salvation, you're doomed. You're not going to fulfill it. You're not going to do it. If you fail at one point, you're guilty of all of it. For, another concluding term, He who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. And so, if you don't commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you become a transgressor of the law. He could have chosen any of the commandments. His point is this, the God who said one thing said everything. The God who said one thing said anything. And if you break anything, you break everything. There's absolutely no margin of error permitted. And so he says to them quite bluntly and brutally, In this matter, verse 12, regarding the guilt and lawbreaking, in this matter, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of freedom. You want to act like those who are going to be judged under the law of freedom. You don't want the royal law with all of its demands. You want the law that has become the law of freedom because of Christ. The law itself has not changed, brothers and sisters, it's the same eternal law. Jesus wasn't lying when he said not one jot or tittle is going to pass away. He didn't come to destroy the law, he says, but to fulfill the law. And because the law is fulfilled, when you put your faith in him, he gives you all the merit that would have been earned by obeying the law. And therefore, what James is saying is the law becomes a law of freedom for those who are in Christ, not a law of death for those who are outside of him. So, verse 13, here's the conclusion. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. The main point he's saying is that mercy is to be shown impartially to everyone because mercy has been shown to you. Beloved, I do pray this church is set apart as a merciful church. May we be a merciful congregation. May we be a congregation of people who know and express and receive mercy. Because there are going to be several times where you enter into this room on a Sunday morning in need of mercy. And if you really knew your heart, you would know that every time you gather here, you're in need of mercy. Mercy received from God, mercy shown to each other. We discussed earlier the importance of the grammar that was going on in that previous section about how hypothetical this was. And I must remind you, it's exactly the same grammar that is shown back in James chapter 1. If you go to verse 2, a translation of James chapter 1 verse 2 is rejoice, my brothers if you might run aground on various temptations. It's exactly the same in the original. It is not a guarantee that you'll experience trials. It is the high likelihood that you will plunge yourself into temptations and cave under the pressure. And therefore, when you come here, you need to come with the understanding that it is not a place where you will then have judgment heaped upon you for your failure, but a place where you will, by the gospel grace of God, have mercy heaped upon you as a child of God, invited to come back and receive His forgiveness. And may we be a congregation that shows that to each other. Now, lest there be some confusion surrounding this, I want to make it clear to you that there is still a place in Scripture where you're told you will experience trials and through it you will learn to endure. So, just in case you're, you're wondering where that comes from, how that gets imported into our understanding of this text, look over at James, Second uh, uh, Peter. Actually, go to Romans 5. Let's just do that. Romans 5 is better. Romans 5, 3 to 5. Listen to this. He says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. There will be suffering. Jesus promised it for anyone who follows him. There will be trials, and it will cause you to endure, but you endure through the love that is poured into you by the Spirit of God. James is saying, You will run aground on temptation from time to time. It's hypothetical, but very highly likely. And when you do, what you lean upon is mercy. And so he wraps up for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Look over in James chapter 4, verses 11 to 12. Again, he's going to pick this up, so I have to go here. My apologies for so many cross-references, but it's important. You have to understand this. It's one complete unit. We have to understand the book as a whole. Look what he says, chapter 4, verses 11 to 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. There's the, there's the tongue again. There's the speaking again. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother, same language, speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Isn't that incredible? He says, if you speak evil against your brother and you judge your brother, not only are you putting the law on your brother, the law of, the royal law, the law of God, the law without mercy, but you actually stand in judgment of the law. You're putting yourself even above the law. You're making up your own law. Like the law of God wasn't calling you to a high enough standard. That's extraordinary. (laughs) That's like an extraordinary accusation to bring against these brothers, Verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your brother? Who are you to judge your brother? Who am I to judge you? Who are you to judge each other? When we say this is a place where it's it's, it's not focused on judgment, it's not just because we want to be nice to each other. It's not because we want to minimize sin. It's not because we want to say, oh, it's okay, it's not a big deal. It's not because we want to say, just go out and live any way you want. God will forgive you. It's absolutely not the case. But the reason why this should be a place not of judgment but of mercy is because we all come in as recipients of mercy that we need to show to one another, reminding them that while sin has the capability of separating us from God forever and plunging us into the rightful, eternal hell we deserve— It has been paid for in full by the Son of God who came to obey in every area where we have failed and then given us that righteousness. You see, mercy is not just charity. Mercy is not just given to you as a pardon, letting you off the hook. Mercy was purchased. And it was purchased at an infinite cost. And so what we do in showing mercy to one another is reminding one another that the infinitely valuable mercy of Christ is what we proclaim. Therefore, the summary of the entire section, what wraps up what he began in chapter 1 verse 19 is this, mercy triumphs over judgment. Why? Because the merit of Christ triumphs over any of your merit, the mercy of Christ over any of your sin. And the mercy that is shown to us is based on the person and work of Christ. And that's what we can show to each other. In that regard, your faith, your obedience to Christ is going to be manifest in these fruits of action, of doing that gospel, of honor and showing honor to each other. And then in the mercy that we show. No one can really fulfill the royal law in their own strength because one failure is total failure. And so Christ fulfilled what we failed, and that brings freedom from judgment. We have known mercy, and so we show mercy. And therefore, James 2.13 is the conclusion of the argument opened up in James 1.19. May that be true of each of us individually and us as a body. Amen? Father in heaven, thank you for that powerful word and for that powerful challenge And also for the uh, extraordinary mercy that you've shown us that by the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us, we might be able to receive your implanted word, your gospel, your mercy, show it to others. May this be something that compels us to come together knowing that when we gather, we will receive from you the mercy and the grace that we need, not the judgment and the condemnation that our consciences could adequately provide on their own. We know that it is highly likely that we have fallen into, and even intentionally plunged ourselves into, temptations, in the last few days, and it's likely to happen in the next few. And so I pray that through this pattern of failure and forgiveness, we would continue to grow in our endurance and in our joy, because we see that every time we come to you, because the Spirit has provoked our hearts to repent, that there is a reminder of the perfect forgiveness that exists in Christ and the righteousness that is ours. May it cause us to grow even more committed in our effort to live out by your spirit and your power and out of our joy and thankfulness, the good law that you've set before us. And may our assurance be profoundly anchored to the person of Christ and not to the ups and downs of our own performance. For it's in his name we pray, amen.